Our scripture text for this morning comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Listen now for the word of the Lord to you this morning. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, ruler of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy and gracious God, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All four Gospels agree that John the Baptist is central to the story of Jesus. But there's something unique about the way that Luke frames his ministry. I don't know if you caught it. He lists all the important people of the time, the people that we might expect for God to speak through, Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, the various governors. Tiberius uh, was considered by many to be a god, that when he spoke, God was speaking. Annas and Caiaphas, the, the high priests, for their part, represented God to the people. But Luke tells us that that is not where the word of God came. Luke tells us that the word of God came to John in the wilderness, the wild place, which is where God usually finds us, in the wilderness of our own lives, the confused and untamed places, the places that perhaps we are uh, lost, places of struggle, of difficulty. And what was the word that John received? Ultimately, it was a word of comfort. It was a word of peace. It was a word of judgment, yes, but ultimately a word of salvation. Repent, but in your repentance, know and trust, have full confidence that your sins are forgiven. A word of salvation is what John preached in the wilderness. But because this salvation did not arrive as expected. John needed to prepare the people of Israel to hear it. How we prepare matters in almost every area of our life, whether we are preparing for an exam or a presentation for work, whether we're preparing for a trip, buying gear we do not need but think we do, or preparing to host family in town for the holidays. If we skip the preparation, usually nothing good comes of it. 
Some of you know that I started trail running a couple of years ago and had, had hoped to run some kind of long distance races this year. But back in March, I developed uh, some pain just below my knee. And so I did what any reasonable guy in his late 30s would do. I ignored it. <laughs> and I pretended that it would just fix itself. And then after about six months of that self-delusion, I went and saw a sports therapist. Um, as I sat in her office, she asked me one question, which was, have you had your knee imaged yet? I did not know what that meant, but I said no. And she said I should probably start there, so I had immediately felt bad that I was starting with her. Uh, but she said she'd examine me and she'd make any adjustments that she could. So she asked me to lay on my back uh, so that she could stretch my leg out, and as soon as she lifted my right leg up to stretch it, she gasped, which is not what you want to hear <laughs> when you are being examined by someone in the medical community. <clears throat> and she asked, when was the last time that you stretched your leg? About 20 years ago, I said. <laughs> and so incredulously, she fired back, why? The only thing I could think to say was, I don't know, stretching is boring. <laughs> Which as you can imagine, did not amuse her and did not help my case at all. So she gave me some stretches. She said, you do not need to have your knee imaged, you need to stretch like a normal person. <laughs> so I promised to stretch my leg. The good news of this story is that although my hamstring was wound tighter than any hamstring she had seen, she assured me, all I needed to do was stretch. I needed to prepare my body, which I did, and the pain went away. Until about two weeks ago when I stopped stretching and the pain returned. <laughs> but the bad news is that I ran on a hurt knee for six months, for six months, because I failed to prepare my body to run. Preparation is important. How we prepare for things changes the experience of the thing we're preparing for. And Advent reminds us that preparation is a key component of our spiritual lives. How we prepare for the birth of Christ in the world, in our lives, matters. Today we lit the candle of peace to remind us that Christ's reign is one of peace. The kingdom of God is one of peace. But my friends, I wonder if we have spent any time at all preparing for what that really means. I don't think that we consciously prefer anxiety or conflict or struggle to peace, just that it's kind of our default setting as human beings and sinners such as we are, I think we often accept the discomfort of worry and of resentment and judgment a lot like I accepted the discomfort of the nagging pain in my knee rather than taking steps to address it. John describes Jesus' ministry as one through which every valley shall be filled, be lifted up, and every mountain made low, where the crooked will be made straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. In other words, Christ will reconcile what seems to us unreconcilable. That's why we call him the Prince of Peace. So, how do we prepare ourselves 
to be people of peace? How do we prepare ourselves to receive Christ's kingdom of peace and reconciliation? Here's just a few ideas. First, humility, humility, humility. This is basically what St. Augustine advised when asked how to approach the spiritual life in the fifth century. The first part is humility, the second, humility, the third, humility. And this I would continue to repeat as often as you might ask direction. You might think that's a pretty weird place to start when it comes to preparing for peace, and maybe you're right, maybe you have a point if that's what you're feeling. But humility does two things at once, two very important things. First, it opens us up to receive forgiveness. You can't repent unless you first have humility. It opens us up to receive the forgiveness that God offers to us in Christ and therefore makes us at peace with God. But then second, I also think that the humility creates a capacity in us, a reservoir in us for mercy, for mercy, for others. And without mercy, I don't think that peace is possible. One of the reasons that we are I think living with such antagonism towards one another right now is that we've lost this capacity for mercy. The reservoir of mercy in our souls has dried. We are living in an age of confrontation where anger goes viral more than any other emotion on the internet, where outrage is taken as a sign of devotion to one's ideals, to one's causes and beliefs. Politicians and pundits, influencers on the internet are all rewarded, they're all rewarded for using their platforms to confront things that they think are unjust or wrong. And those who are considered to be on the wrong side are uh, punished, shamed, or at the very least tweeted about. And I think that one of the reasons that this anger is happening, one of the places it's coming from, is a sincere desire for justice. Wrongs need to be made right. And I think that that desire is a good thing. Justice is necessary for peace. Any talk of peace that doesn't mention justice, I think, is unserious and kind of shallow. But justice is not the only thing necessary for peace. Peace requires mercy, too. Forgiveness, uh, I think, is what opens a door for people to live together in harmony, work together in harmony. Uh, a few years ago, when I was in Israel in the West Bank, learning and listening and eating the best <clears throat> falafel I've ever had in my life, I learned of an organization there uh, called the Parents Circle. Maybe you've heard of it. The Parents Circle is a, a, an organization that's made up of Israeli and Palestinian parents who have lost a child to the conflict. And one of the women who is part of this group is named Robbie, and she is a, a Jewish Israeli mother whose son David was killed by a Palestinian sniper while he was on duty in the West Bank. And when the IDF soldiers came to her house to deliver this news to her, the first thing out of Robbie's mouth was, you may not kill anyone in the name of my child. And she has spent the last 17 years working with the parents' circle toward peace and reconciliation. Some of the families, like Robbie's family, 
have received justice. The perpetrators have been caught. They've been convicted. They've been sentenced. But if you listen to her story, and if you listen to the stories of the other parents who are in this circle, justice is not the thing that gave them peace. It was part of it. But mercy and forgiveness was the bigger reason that they found peace. Of course, this is a pretty extreme example to where we are living here in Austin, Texas. But take a look at your own life, in your marriage, in your friendships, in your work, in your neighborhood. And is it really accountability? Is it everybody getting what they deserve that gives you peace in those relationships? Or is it also forgiveness? I think that forgiveness is the thing that kind of jams something in the gears of resentment and anger and judgment that are kind of always churning within us. And once we jam forgiveness in those gears, we experience a kind of peace that can only come from that forgiveness. Humility, humility, humility. Second, narrow your focus. There's a a line from a Thad Cockrell song that asks, who's robbing you of peace? That has stuck with me for the last few years. Who's robbing you of peace? I know that some of you are being robbed of your peace by someone else, whether because of neglect or conflict or abuse. And in that case, peace is a promise that you cling to, that you cling to. And the words that we just read from John the Baptist are a real comfort to you. If you are in the valley right now, you will be lifted up. And Christ will hold accountable those who have caused harm. But for many of us, and maybe most of us, we are perfectly capable of robbing ourselves of peace. And so peace is something we need to practice. And one of those practices, I think, is narrowing our focus. Narrowing our focus. The fantasy behind so much of our anxiety and despair and unrest is control. It's control. We often rob ourselves of peace by pretending to have more control over our lives and our circumstances. Make a list. Make a list of things that agitate you or make you anxious, and maybe you will see what I mean. Uh, For me, I am least peaceful when I'm in a hurry to get somewhere, and the world around me doesn't move out of my way. Have you ever driven on 35? (laughs) Then you know what I mean. Or when watching my son's soccer game, disappointed that the referee is not interested in hearing my interpretation of the game, which is the right interpretation. Or doom scrolling, right? Doom scrolling on social media, kind of concerned and anxious with the state of things in the world. But if I narrow my focus to what is actually within my control, how I treat my children and my wife, what kind of neighbor I am, how I can influence positive change in the areas I actually have power, I actually discover that I am much more at peace. Who's robbing you of peace? The very next line in that Thad Cockrell song is, and who is the giver? Who is the giver? It's a lovely follow-up question, I think, which is meant to remind us to surrender control to God who often gives us that peace that is beyond 
understanding. Finally, love the one you see. Love the one you see. This is a, a phrase I learned from Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And it challenges our normal practice of loving people because we find them to be lovable or worthy in some way. Kierkegaard's point is that if we wait until a person is perfect to love them, we will never actually love them because we're all imperfect. In John's language, we're all rough in some way, requiring God to smooth us out. Committing ourselves to loving the one that we see means loving another person, no matter the imperfections, no matter the perfections that we see. But there's another way that loving the one we see can give us peace right now, I think. I don't know if you were experiencing this, but I think we are too entrenched in our identities. And we're so entrenched in our identities that we typically see an identity before we see a person. We see a conservative, we see a liberal, we see a progressive, we see a Marxist, we see someone who's privileged, we see black and white and gay and straight before we see an actual human being. And we make up our minds when we see that identity whether or not that person is worthy of our love. We are more complicated than the identities we choose or that are assigned to us. We are more complicated than that. And if we're going to prepare for peace such that the Prince of Peace might recognize us as part of his kingdom, we're going to have to learn to see past the identity, through the identity, to the person, to the person. Uh, during the pandemic, I led a few groups through some dialogue about uh, racism. This is in the wake of George Floyd's murder, and a lot of people wanted to learn and kind of process what we were seeing unfold in our society. This is a cause I really care a lot about, and I know a lot of you care a lot about it as well. And as much as progress as we've made to create a more equitable and just society, we still have work to do. We still have work to do. And during one of these sessions, one of the members of the group and I got into an argument about the content that I was covering, which was super great and not awkward at all for everybody else who was on the Zoom call. You've been a part of those Zoom calls, I know. Safe to say that neither one of us left that meeting, that, that meeting feeling great. And you can imagine the identities that he and I assigned to one another. He felt that I wasn't taking him seriously. I felt that his challenge was unserious. I wish I could say that I was the one who handled the situation well. That I followed up with him to reconcile, but I didn't. Instead, he called me the next day, and he asked uh, if we could meet in person uh, to sort it out. He cared enough about our relationship not to abandon it because of a disagreement. I learned a profound lesson from him about loving the person we see, not the identity in front of us. I think often because of a cause we're committed to or an idea or a belief that we don't want to budge on, we fail this test. We fail to love the person right in front of us. But if we shut down when we disagree with each other, I think we foreclose a huge opportunity for peace. And I don't just mean peace between 
us. Peace in our own lives, peace in our own souls as well. We still disagree, I would say, a lot. But every once in a while, he buys me lunch, <laughs> which is great. If you read in your Advent devotional uh, today or this week, uh, you, find, you found some poems uh, for each week written by covenant member Ed Seymour. Um, for this week, Ed's poem begins by describing peace as the elusive thing desired by all. The elusive thing that is desired by all. It's true, peace often feels elusive, doesn't it? That's why when we talk about it, we speak of it as something we hope to find. But maybe if we prepare ourselves for peace with a little humility, narrowing our focus, and by loving the one that we see, peace might actually find us. Or in the words of John, we shall see our salvation. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.